Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Working through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the... Um, is technically the scope of the Sermon on the Mount. This morning, though, is just by way of introduction, we're going to just read the first couple verses and talk about uh, the context, the content, and the call of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read together Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll stay in Matthew. We'll flip through the first four chapters together as soon as we finish reading. So this is Matthew chapter 5. Verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, there's a cliffhanger, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, excuse me, the grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Darn it, I had a little bit of ad lib in there before I said that, my bad. I'll try harder next time. So, a bit of a cliffhanger, though, there we have. He opens his mouth and teaches them, saying, and then we get into the content of the the actual words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. So, as I said, this morning we're starting a new series, working expositionally, verse by verse, uh, section by section, through the Sermon on the Mount, where we looked at this, will take us clear probably until Covenant Sunday, which will be uh, coming up in September, maybe the first Sunday of October. We haven't decided officially yet. So this will take us all the way through the summer, looking at the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there is a parallel passage in Luke chapter 6. It's only verses 20 through 49. So Luke takes this What is five chapters in the book, or five, three chapters in the book of Matthew, Luke just kind of gives it all in about 20, 30 verses. And so we have a couple of different uh, realizations of this Sermon on the Mount. Now, they're not exact copies of each other, but you can imagine that Jesus, as he sits down, takes this posture to preach. He goes up on the mountain, he sits down, which is how they taught how the Jewish uh, rabbis taught back then. They would sit down and everyone would stand around and listen. He takes this seat and he begins to speak. Yet, if you read chapters 5, 6, and 7 and the 30 verses from Luke, you've got 10, 15 minutes of reading slowly out loud. So obviously Jesus is teaching longer than 15 minutes. People didn't gather just for a a 15-minute sermon from Jesus. But Matthew and Luke take the the big ideas of what Jesus is saying and they bring it to us, they put forward under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this this seminal teaching, this, this first teaching from Jesus. There are five specific discourse sections in the book of Matthew. And you can look them up. Any good study Bible is going to talk about the five different discourse passages, teaching sections, discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the first one, the Sermon on the Mount. The last one's fairly popular. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And that's the one where Jesus, Jesus is talking about all the end time stuff that's going on. That's the last of his 
five discourses recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. Five is an interesting number that Matthew picked, and I'm not into I'm not a numerologist or whatever. But in in the Jewish canon, we have the Torah or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. There is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is the Torah. This is the their five important teachings, and Matthew records five teachings of Jesus. I don't know. It's it's kind of interesting, but I don't want to make too much of that. But it is. Something that is interesting. But it isn't the first thing Jesus does in Matthew, right? And so as we lead into it, let's just look briefly at at what gets us to the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew is is the most Jewish, they say, of the Gospels. It is placed first. It's interesting. Like it's in your, in your Bible, it goes Malachi, Old Te- last book of the Old Testament, and then into the New Testament. And Matthew is sort of this bridge between looking for the Jewish Messiah, right? They're looking for this coming king. And then Matthew introduces this genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he begins to put out this realization of who Jesus is. Matthew also gives us the long birth narrative, right? Where we, we hear, we read it at Christmas, about the, the birth narrative of Jesus, the visit of the wise men. And then also we have, if you look at chapter 2 in Matthew, he shares this interesting detail of the flight to Egypt that, that Joseph hears in a dream, Herod's wanting to go to kill the babies, and so they escape to Egypt, and, and Matthew sees this as a fulfillment of prophecy out of the book of Malachi, I believe. He sees uh, out of the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 11, but in verse 15 of chapter 2, we see that Matthew writes that this going into Egypt and coming back was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt I will call my son. This, he's quoting Hebrew, uh, Hosea 11, Hosea 11, 1, with this reality. There, Matthew is trying to point to us, Jesus is the better king that is coming. Jesus is the better, uh, he is the better Israel. Like Israel, remember, if we could go back to Exodus, they, they go down, Joseph, right, gets sold into slavery, and then Israel, Jacob, and his family all comes to Egypt, right, where they take up slavery, and they're in bondage there for all of those years, become a great amount of people, and then they begin in bondage. They become slaves in Egypt, but eventually Moses, right, raises up, and he leads Israel, he leads God's people out of bondage into the promised land. And Matthew is saying all of that is a, a foreshadowing of this Jesus, of this king, uh, the better Israel, who's going to come out of Egypt, and he's going to lead a people out of Egypt. Jesus is the better Moses. And so all of this pointing towards Jesus' divinity and his virgin birth, Jesus as the fulfillment of the, the people of Israel, the new Moses, Jesus just... As, as, as the, the, the greater one. Because you go then into, we got this little bit about John the Baptist. He's the new Elijah that is the forerunner of Jesus. And then we go into chapter 4, the temptations, right? Where does the Bible begin? The first Adam is in the garden in its paradise and he's tempted. 
in the garden filled with all sorts of good things, the first Adam fails. And then in chapter 4 of Matthew, Jesus, he's not in the garden, he's in the desert, and he's tempted, and he succeeds. He's the better Adam. He's the better Moses. He's the true Israel. He's the better Adam. He's the second Adam. He's the new Adam. All of these things pointing to Jesus is someone special showing up, right? And that's to understate the case, right? Jesus is someone special showing up. And so all of these things pointing to Jesus. And so he begins his ministry there in chapter 4, verse 12. Just the heading, if your Bible probably says, Jesus begins his ministry. And we see his message. Verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We have here the first sermon, basically, recorded by Matthew. Jesus saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is a better king bringing a better kingdom. He's, there's, there's more going on. He's bringing a better king, kingdom. He announces a message. And then we see at the end of chapter 4, he works these wonders, right? Jesus ministers to these great crowds. He calls disciples to himself. And then 23 to the end of chapter 24, Jesus works these miracles. His fame spreads throughout all of Syria they bring him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus' like, notoriety begins to really blow up. He is the better Moses. He is the true Israel. He is the... He is the better Adam. He is the new Adam. He is the true Adam. And he is this coming king. He's the better king. He's coming and he's healing. And all of this notoriety is coming up to him. And so then, what does he do? Verse 5, chap chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he goes up on the mountain. Locations, I don't want to overstate it. But locations are interesting in the Bible. And there's something to be said when it says that Jesus goes up on the mountain to say something. That's like to trigger some thoughts in your head. Well, who goes up on a mountain for words from God? Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, right? He goes up on the mountain to get the word from God. And here we see Jesus again as the better Moses. He goes up on the mountain and then he opens his mouth and speaks. He's, he's a superior Moses. I mean, Moses is this great figure for, for the Jewish faith, right? He leads us out of Egypt. He's God's man. He hears the name of God. I am Yahweh. He gets the, the holy name of God given to him. Moses is this huge figure. And yet, so Jesus shows up, but unlike Moses, he doesn't go up on the mountain to get words from God to share. He goes up on the mountain and he shares the words. He speaks them. <laughs> he is not getting words from God. He's speaking them because he is God. He is a far better Moses. He shows up on the mountain, goes up the mountain, ascends the mountain, sits down. His disciples come to him and he opens his mouth to preach. Now there's lots of debate about who's here, who this sermon is for. Clearly the disciples are there, right? The text says 
Verse 1, his disciples came to him. But as we'll read chapters 5, 6, and 7, we see that there's crowds there as well, right? Because we see at the end of chapter 4, great crowds are following him. So there's a, there's a broad audience going on in this, they're hearing this sermon, but it is a sermon for his disciples, for those who are following him as king. So that is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. But now briefly, let's look at some of the content. Just as a flyover, we're going to hopefully, Lord willing, dig into all of these sections uh, in the weeks to come. But you can see it starts off with the familiar Beatitudes, right? Blessed are. Blessed are those. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are weak. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Not blessed are those who are full of themselves. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for those are the ones who get filled. And Jesus goes through these blessings. We begin to see the upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven, of the kingdom of God. And he goes on preaching about the, um, just about the realities of what it means to be in the kingdom. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says, there is not much of the credenda of Christianity in the Sermon on the Mount. There's not much of the credenda of Christianity. You see the word creed in there. Not much of the belief, what, there, what it is to believe. There's not so much what there is to believe about Christianity, the credenda of Christianity. But there is holy, he is wholly taken up with the agenda of Christianity. Not just the credenda, what you should believe, but the agenda, what it should do in your life. That shouldn't be a, that, that's an important point. It shouldn't be controversial, but it is in our world today. That Christianity actually should make a difference in your life on the ground. That is not just the credenda, not just the belief. It is very easy. It's very easy. And, and Jesus will get at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he will talk about these who say, we did all these things. Lord, we prophesied in your name and we did all these mighty works in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. That's terrifying because what, what is, it is easy to confess belief. It is easy to say, oh, I believe Jesus in these certain areas. But it is a far different thing to actually have Jesus affect not just your credenda, your beliefs, but to actually affect your agenda. <laughs> That's a different thing. Jesus doesn't just change the way that I talk about him. He changes who I am. He changes what I do. He changes my priorities. I no longer am first in my life. Jesus and his will, his glory is first and foremost. It doesn't just change your credenda. It changes your agenda. And this Sermon on the Mount does that very thing. It is not, well, there's plenty to talk about in what right belief is. Belief in Jesus as God. But Jesus comes and he begins to teach what, how belief in him affects your agenda. People are familiar, they like, it's interesting. I mean, you, you'll hear comments of respect for Jesus. Like, you know, I, Jesus was a good moral teacher. People will say that sometimes. They're not so caught up maybe in the, the atonement of Jesus, the idea of me being a sinner, needing to repent and be saved. But, but Jesus was a good moral teacher. And they'll quote places like uh, Matthew chapter 7, 1. Judge not that you not be judged. People want to get behind that. Like, yeah, I like that. That's right. You don't, don't judge me. Judge not lest you be judged. But that is by no means, if you read the rest of Jesus' words, 
that is by no means saying that you can't call sin, sin. <laughs> that is not at all, as we'll get to it in the weeks to come, that is, that is isolating this verse from its whole context. But it is not that we cannot call out sin for sin, but people will take certain elements of this sermon and they'll, they'll isolate them for their own benefit. We also have the golden rule in chapter 7. Do unto others what you have them to do unto you. And these are popular things, but they're often taken out of the context. And as we work through the whole content of the Sermon on the Mount, we'll see Jesus means business. Jesus means business. Chapter 6 is all caught up with the fatherhood of God. The, the, the Lord's Prayer is in there. Our Father, the fatherhood of God. And then the need to treasure Him, lay up treasures, and to not be anxious because of who He is. Martin Lloyd-Jones, hopefully I'll be quoted. I'll probably be quoted. You'll probably hear him a lot. He's got a great book called Studies on the Sermons on the Mount. I'll probably be quoting him a lot. But Lloyd-Jones says this, The Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called His commandment. His new commandment was that we love one another even as He has loved us. This is Jesus' new commandment to His people. Now, it's important. So we got the context of the sermon. Here's where it happens. Here's some of the content. We'll dig more into that. But then what is the, the calling of the Sermon on the Mount? Like, what is the point of, of reading this? Like, so as we march into this text over the next several weeks, what is the calling of the Sermon on the Mount? Why? What, what, is, what is the point of the Sermon on the Mount? And the call of the Sermon on the Mount is for the king's people to live like the king's people. It is for the king's people to live like they are the king's people. One commentary says this, the sermon does not, does not, teach men and women how to live to get into the kingdom, right? We're not going to read the Sermon on the Mount and take it up as these are the things we do to get into the kingdom. It is not teaching men and women how to live to get into the kingdom, but how men and women in the kingdom ought to live. You get the distinction? It is not there to teach men and women how to get into the kingdom, but it is there to teach men and women who are in the kingdom how to live now that you are the kings. The call for the, of the sermon is for the king's people to live like it. Not to do this to become the king's people. That's not the issue. We're not talking justification here. We're talking about as the king's people, here now is how you ought to live. So... Lloyd-Jones in his introduction, and you can get this book if you want to, I, I commend it to you. But he says in his introduction to, this, to his sermon series, this is he writing this back in 1940, 1950, preaching these sermons. He says this, he says, I do not think it is a harsh judgment to say that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. It's a scathing rebuke. He says, alas. He, tries, he, kind of, he kind of apologizes for saying it. But he says, I do not think it is a harsh judgment, meaning I think it's true. He's saying, I think it's true that the most obvious feature of the life of the Christian church today is, alas, its superficiality. 
That's an indictment. <laughs> That's got some sting to it. You think, if he's preaching in the 1950s over in England, is it any better today? To be superficial is to lack any depth of character or any seriousness of thinking. And I don't want to sound mean, but I think there's a real epidemic in the, in the church in America of the same thing. I don't think the church has gotten any better. And I honestly, I think it's understandable why so many in the church today are satisfied, why so many of us in the church today are satisfied with a superficial religion, a surface religion. We just want the appearance of togetherness and having it together. We, want, we don't want the hard work of actually <laughs> having Jesus make a difference in your life, bring about repentance, bring about the hard work of relationships, bring about the hard work of putting yourself last and considering others more important than yourself, like Colossians tells us to, Philippians tells us to, to count others more significant than yourselves. We don't really want the hard work of that, but we'd love to have the appearance of it. <laughs> we'd love for people to think we have it together. That's why social media is so popular, right? You get to placard to the world, see how put together I am. See how wonderful my life is. See how well-behaved my kids are. And yet we all know how Sunday mornings go. This is the worst, it's the worst day of the week for kids. My kids were up at 6 a.m. on Saturday. They had nowhere to go, nothing to do. They're out of bed before the crack of dawn to just sit around and do nothing. But a day when you have to go somewhere, boy, that's different. And a day when you have to go somewhere to worship Jesus, then, then there's all kinds of powers at work to make that a mess. But we'd love, but boy, I tell you what, we can put a picture on Instagram this afternoon if we want to of how wonderful, and you all could. I mean, it's not just me. I, I've heard some stories even just this morning from some others. We love the superficiality of being able, being able to just put it out a, a front of something working, of, of having it together. But it's all just superficial. And what we are after here is not superficial religion. We do not want to dress up a boat that is immediately going to sink once it hits rough waters. One of my favorite pastors talks about this idea of ballast in the boat. And ballast in a boat is basically just rock or sand or whatever they had to have to put weight in the bottom, as low in the bilge, in the, in the lowest part of the boat to give it stability. You know, did you ever get in a flat bottom John boat and then you put a, a fishing chair up in it and you get all that weight on top and you lean over? It's how quickly that thing will go over, right? Because there's no ballast, it has no, it has no weight in the bottom of it. Part of the reality of what we're looking for, what we want to do here in equipping all of Christ's people to worship him with all of their lives is putting ballast in our boat. Now, we could spend a bunch of time decorating that John boat, deck, putting pretty flags, having the prettiest paint on the side, have all kinds of baubles hanging off of it, and make it look beautiful, and then as soon as some rough waters come, that boat goes over because there's no ballast. There's no weight there's no weightiness to it. It's all superficial. We don't want that here. I don't want that for your lives. I mean, you all look great. I'm not trying to say you don't look great. You look beautiful this morning, so I'm not, I'm not saying that. I want ballast in your boat for when the rough seas of life come our way, that if we work hard to have a superficial presentation of Christianity, if we build Missio 
our church family here, if we build ourselves up with a great superficial storefront, boy, we've got, we've got all these great things going on. Look at us, aren't we something? But we have no ballast for when trouble really hits. We've done nothing, right? We've done nothing. If you build your life up, your marriage up, your parenting up, your occupation, your house, whatever, you build your whole life up with all sorts of superficial um, storefronting, uh, posturing, but you have no ballast, you have no anchor, then what do you do when life turns upside down? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is is an antidote to superficiality. And if we'll take this sermon and we'll really let it dig into who we are, if we'll really let it challenge us, point out in our hearts where we fall short, point out in our hearts where we treasure things more than Jesus, where we, put, where we want to serve ourselves and not serve our neighbor, this will give us an antidote to superficiality. What do we want for you here at Missio? We do not just want dressed up people going through the Christian motions with Christian looks on their faces. We are seeking genuine Christianity. I hope that's why you're here, right? I want to worship the real Jesus for who he really is. I hope that's why you're here. We are seeking Jesus. We want him for who he is, and we want to follow him where he calls us to go. No apologies. You know, we're at a great moment at Missio to emphasize this. We had a great Sunday last week. I mean, Easter family is coming in. This place was packed. If we'd had 15 more, we'd had to stand in the back or something. We had, it was great. It was wonderful. And we actually are at a really good spot at this stage in our church life. We really are. We're doing very well. We're now official, right? We got a bank account this week. We're big time. So, you know, we, we've got, we've got things, we are, we, but honestly, we are a really good spot. I mean, Jim has more experience in these things than I do, just talking about the sort of life cycle of a church. Things are going very well in a, in a very obvious way here. But, but we're still at a rented space, if you didn't notice. We're still at the courthouse. We're still not completely comfortable. We're not all that polished. We have a guy who barely plays the guitar leading worship for us on a Sunday morning. We're not all that polished, you know? Honestly, in many superficial ways, we're still kind of a big work in progress. But here's the thing. I would rather have a handful of people sincerely growing in their walk with Jesus in a superficially dissatisfying environment. I'd rather have a handful of people sincerely growing in their walk with Jesus in a superficially dissatisfying environment than hundreds of people celebrating themselves in a superficially satisfying environment. I'd rather have, it would mean way more to Missio Church to have two or three of us really growing, to have two or three people come in and to hear the gospel really hear the call of who Jesus is, really have their treasure caught up in him so that they can weather the storms of life. When troubles come your way, it's far more satisfying, far more glorifying to God to have anchors, to have ballast put in our boats than to have some superficial show of having it together. Why is that better? Because that's what Jesus wants. He wants the real you and all of your sin and in all of your brokenness 
to come to him for real forgiveness, real healing, and real empowerment for life lived under him as your king. Let the world say what it wants about our super or your superficial inadequacies or our unpopular lifestyle. We are not here for them. We are here to live for the king who rescued us. The call from the Sermon on the Mount is out of superficiality into the supreme joy there is in belonging to Jesus and his kingdom. The call will be both convicting and compelling. Convicting and compelling. So don't be surprised when we go through this Sermon on the Mount and you think, man, that is not describing me. <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do. That's part of the point. The Sermon on the Mount will be convicting. It will point out all the ways we are falling short, all the ways that we are not living up to Christ's high standard. And it is also compelling because we hear the call to live a higher way. We hear the call to live for the King. So our call to action this morning, test your heart. David says in Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. What are the outcomes we desire most in our lives? What are the outcomes we desire most? And I'm not throwing shade at you. It's been so interesting for me to go from where I was, you know, whatever, having, having superficial like baubles to, to this and reprioritizing, what do I really care about? What do I really want? Just something to parade around for the onlookers, wherever they are? Or do I really want to be in a family of people that are going hard after Jesus, that want to live for him, that want to say, put death to death their sin and live for his glory and his righteousness? What outcomes do we most desire Doubtless, we will all find at various times competing motives inside of us. We're not perfect yet. That is why we need to listen to our king. And when we see a desire in us that competes with him and his way, we ought to, by the Spirit, with his help, kill it. And when we see a chance to walk out a life that honors him, we ought to be quick to follow. Don't settle. Don't set your sights upon superficial Christianity. The world might applaud you for it, but the king will not be pleased. Trust him truly, and let's live for him fully. Let's pray. Father, as we have spent some time trying to think about the challenge of a text like the Sermon on the Mount, as we go out these doors and into our week, and as we take time maybe to look through it, and as we spend these next few weeks discussing it, Father, I pray, I pray for my own heart, I pray for the hearts here as well, that, Father, you would help us to wage war against the superficial Christianity that is so desirous to our sinful, fleshly self, just wanting to have a show, just wanting things, just wanting uh, just to be impressive to the world, just wanting it easy, whatever that desire is, short of wanting to be yours <laughs> father do your work here in this church family that father we would be a gathering of people with admittedly <laughs> not all the superficial gloss and glamour but with hearts broken before you hearts needy for you and therefore hearts satisfied 
in you and in you alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.